Welcome to the Answer Religious Era Show. My name is Brian Garlock. Now is our live Bible Q&A. So if you have a Bible question, why don't you go ahead and email us, questions at answeringreligiouserror.com. Again, that's questions at answeringreligiouserror.com. You can also private message us on our Facebook page. That's Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash answeringreligiouserror. And you can also come on the show if you'd like to. Our producer is in the background, ready to take your uh, call there. You can follow the instructions on our Facebook page as well as YouTube description. If you'll look there on Facebook, it's right above the video. On YouTube, it's right below the video. Those are the instructions to come on the show. We'd love to have you. If you are brave enough to come on, we will be super nice to you. Don't worry. But you can come on. You can ask your Bible question or you can email us. Those are the best ways to get a hold of us. We might not see your question if you just... uh, post on a or comment on a random video that's shared. So if you want us to answer your question, email us or private message us on Facebook. We're also live on Twitter. And after the show, for those who are watching the replay, if you are not able to catch us live, we are on podcasts. You can search for The Daily Answer or Answering Religious Error on all major podcast platforms. Talking about The Daily Answer, that is a show that's hosted by Mark Dunnigan. And it is live every Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. Eastern Time, where he shares some insight about his life and the Bible and current events, all kinds of things, messages that he brings every Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. to challenge you and to help you grow in your in your maturity as far as your spiritual maturity with Christ. And so we'd encourage you to subscribe to uh, that show on all major podcast platforms. Gentlemen, it's good to see every one of you today. Looking forward to the show. We've got a lot of good questions lined up. We've got Bob, Brian, Mark Gibson is filling in today for Terry. And, well, Stephen's out as well. So we've got Nick and, uh, and Mark. Guys, how are you doing? Doing great, Brian. Doing great. That's good. Bob, I haven't talked to you in a while. And I now live in the same town as you for a month now, and I have not even seen you. We got to get together, man. Well, that's because I see you. <laughs> so that's why you don't want to see me. Okay, I got you. Yeah, uh, Brian, uh, Brian. There's, I think there's an expression down here, and it's, uh, "How can I miss you if you never go?" <laughs> well, see, I'm, I'm the busy one. Bob, you know, he, he's not that busy. He's retired now. I mean, he could, he could easily make it down this way. But you know, it's good to see everyone. I to get down and. Uh, Maybe go with you to uh, the watermelon capital of the world and visit uh, oh. Paladin. What? Visit what? Paladin. Paladin? Paladin. Paladin? I'm not familiar with that. What is that? Uh, Robert. I can't think of his name. It's I can't over, think of his name. It's over my head, man. <laughs> I don't he know. Paladin on TV. Y'all know what he's talking he's about? Richard Boone. Richard Boone. No. Way yeah, before Richard our time. Boone. Yes. Yeah. Ha- have gun will travel. Have gun yeah. will travel. You know, yes. You're showing your age or I'm showing my age. One of the two. <laughs> that yeah, is Richard Boone. Show. He's down, he preaches down there. All right. Watermelon Capital World, whatever that is. <laughs> this is our live Bible Q&A. So if you have a Bible question, email us again, questions at answeringreligiousair.com or private message us. Uh, Mark Gibson, would you lead us in a word of prayer before we get started? Certainly. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful unto thee for your abundant and great mercies, especially in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We're thankful, Father, for the show today that we can be on and have this opportunity to 
consider questions that uh, may be in the minds of many people. We pray, Father, that we may search your scriptures and seek wisdom as to answering these questions according to your will. We pray, Father, that it will be helpful to us and helpful to all who are listening today. And we pray, Father, that your name may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Appreciate that prayer, brother. Okay. Email us questions at answeringreligiousair.com. Private message us on our Facebook page. We do our very best to take all live comments and questions. And so if you'd like to be on the show included, then go ahead and do that right now. But before we begin with our first question, it is meantime. Okay, uh, and for those who were wondering what Bob was talking about, Cordill, Georgia is the watermelon area that he is talking about. Okay, all right, I'm familiar with that now, Bob. All right, religion, here's the meme for today. Religion uh, isn't the solution for your problems. That's what this uh, meme creator says at the very top. And he has some images, some religious images there. Obviously, that's probably Jesus in the middle. Uh, it's the creator of your problems, he goes on to say. So he says, religion isn't the solution for your problems. It's the creator of your problems. Reject religion to find your true self. Mark Gibson, I'm going to put you on the spot. You're at the very bottom. We'll work our way up to the top. Mark, go ahead. Well, the creator of this meme obviously has a problem with religion, quote unquote, uh, as to what they would define religion as. I'm not sure. Uh, whether it's just anything dealing with God, anything dealing with uh, the idea of God, uh, the Bible, uh, whether he's including Islam and Buddhism and all of that in it. I just suppose they just this is a person that is very uh, unreligious or has had a bad experience uh, in some type of religion. And so they've pretty much come to the conclusion that it is the Thing that causes all of our problems. And that is a common thought through the ages that religions have started wars, religions have caused poverty, religions have caused famines and oppression and so forth. It's been blamed for everything. And that seems to be the idea here. Problem is, of course, the reality is that it's not God or religion per se. It is sin that has caused the problems on the earth from the very beginning caused the problem for Adam and Eve. <clears throat> it wasn't God that that caused the issue there. God showed them the right way, commanded them the right path, but they went astray, and that is what causes our problems. Um, rejecting religion or rejecting God certainly is not going to find our true selves. The scriptures tell us that it is not in man who walketh to direct his own steps. And so rather we are to fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole of man. And so that's my initial reaction to that. This person obviously has had some bad experience. And certainly there are so-called religion out there that is not right with God and not according to his will. And therefore can cause issues and problems in people's lives because they can cause people to go astray. But as to God and the truth, that never creates problems that will solve your problems. I'll let others speak to this too. Amen. Uh, Nick, you want to add anything to that? Well, I think Mark uh, said it pretty well regarding the sin is the true problem that is happening that causes our problems. We look at the suffering in the world. Why does it? Why is there suffering? Why is there 
death, destruction, decay, and it all comes back to sin. And and I would agree to a certain point that you know a lot of false religions are the cause of a lot of our problems. Uh, you've got you got the Crusades back in the 1100s. Uh, that was a very violent time, and it was done in the name of Christ. It's it is it, it still a thousand years later is bringing a black eye against Christianity. And so things that are done in the name of Jesus uh, that are sinful and wrong have certainly uh, set the foundation for a lot of mockery and a lot of scoffing and, and a lot of uh, rebuke. But that's not the true religion of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That does bring us peace. It does bring us a uh, restoration of the things that should have been. Relationships are restored. You know, husbands and wives can truly reconcile in Christianity. The women are elevated uh, instead of demoted and turned to almost slaves. I mean, in in true Christianity, you have a uh, you have that just to be repetitive restoration of all that was intended to begin with, and and of course we await our uh, home in heaven where everything will be. Uh, restored and made new there uh, we have our new bodies we'll have our we'll have that full and better understanding it's true religion is the uh is the key not the false ones that have given bad names to you especially to christ yeah good point you know, ryan james 1 26 and 27 talks about pure and undefiled religion interesting thing about the meme brian it's a religion reject religion to find your true, true self that's a religion uh how do you get away from religion? You can't get away from religion. That is, you can't get away from like a belief. Everyone has a belief. Atheism is a religion. And so it's like, good luck on that one. Good luck on getting rid of religion. Well, that means you have no belief whatsoever in anything. It's like you don't think. You have no point of view. And so every point of view is some sort of belief. Uh, as I said, even atheism. And if we talk about the harm that stuff has done, how about communism? End of the 20th century, 100 million people were dead because of communism. And as noted, we're not in the religion here. We're into truth. We're not into some man-made philosophy and just to be kind of a religious. We're into following Jesus Christ, the truth, the true way. And so, man, but how convenient, how convenient to blame all your problems on something outside of you. Oh, religion's the cause of all your problems. Man, how convenient is that? You mean your selfishness is it? You mean your selfishness has nothing to do with it? Wow. But, yeah, get rid of everything like that. Uh, don't, don't believe in God and don't follow the Bible and just find your true self and see how that will work for you. That's those are my thoughts, Brian. All right, good thoughts, guys. Appreciate that. Yeah, and just the point about you know Jesus not throwing out all religion. He threw out bad religion. He threw out corrupted religion, but he didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. So we need to be careful with, with that. Okay, uh, first question of the day. And if you have a meme that you see floating around that you'd like for us to answer again, don't forget you can email us questions at answeringreligiouserror.com or private message us on our Facebook page. Uh, first question is a live one. Who is the son of perdition in second Thessalonians chapter two through three? Uh, who wants that one first? Okay, Brian. Yeah, yeah I'll take that. Uh, or start it anyway. You know, what's really neat. Paul is talking about a falling away and apostasy that was going to happen. Uh, back in chapter one, he talked about the ultimate return of Christ. And then in chapter two, 
uh, he says, before Christ returns, there has to be this great falling away. The apostasy is actually a very significant prophecy in the New Testament. It's mentioned a number of times by a number of people, including Jesus, uh, that there was going to be a great falling away, uh, a counterfeit of Christianity, you might say, or multiple counterfeits of Christianity were going to be created. Um, and by the way, John tells us in First John that it was going on in his time. So it's uh, not something that was towards the end of time. It was something right there at the very beginning. Um, specifically, though, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when the son of perdition is mentioned, we're told that this is somebody who takes the place of God in the temple of God. Well, the temple of God is the church. First uh, Corinthians chapter uh, three, verse 16, chapter six, uh, tell, uh, talk about that, or second Corinthians chapter six, talk about that idea. And the place of God in the church, well, Jesus is the head of the church. So you might think of this in a, in a very generic sense as this could be anybody who sets themselves up in a position of being the head of the church. Well, there's a lot of people and a lot of groups of people that take that position. Um, most churches today, most denominations have presidents, they have councils that rule popes, uh, patriarchs, whatever you want to call them. Um, and they are people that are uh, dictating to a church something that only Christ uh, is authorized to do. So we might suggest then that this term son of perdition, which is also, by the way, used one other time, it's used to describe Judas in the book of John. We might uh, describe this term son of perdition as just a generic application of anybody who is trying to dictate or take control of a group of people uh, in the name of Christ and is misleading them or is taking them away. And, and that's the, the expression son of perdition is a reference to the idea that they are doubly damned, uh, perdition meaning con condemnation, uh, for themselves and for those that they're leading away. Anyone else? You know, one of the things that I've come to think about with this text is how cyclical it seems. Uh, in the first century, you had Gnosticism, which was a, you know, fit this to the T, right? I mean, there was a lot of false teaching going on, a lot of people being drawn away from the truth. And you go through history and you see it just happening time and time and time again. And so you see the son of perdition, the influence of Satan constantly uh, attacking the church. And, and these concepts, uh, this idea that that with signs and wonders and and with, with uh, just drawing people away uh, from the truth, I, I've come to see that it's. It's always relative, this text is, even though in the first century when Paul wrote this, it was applying to something specific that he was looking at, but it just keeps on happening over and over and over again. And, and so we need to always take warning that this idea that something or someone, a doctrine or a person that is very charismatic can really start drawing people away from the truth. I mean, it is a warning for every generation. And we always need to uh, be on our toes, need to always be aware. And that's why we're doing answering religious error is so that we could address this very, very issue of how people will just try to seduce the masses uh, with their flamboyancy, with their pleasant words, trying to create these itching ears to listen to more. And it just draws away the people from the truth to chase after fables. And, and so I see it's always a, a cycle. It just keeps on coming and coming and coming. And so we always have to be be uh, aware of that. And and so I, I, I kind of broaden it out a little bit more than just a person, but can even be a, a movement or a doctrine. Mark? 
you know, Brian, it's interesting here is that Paul says in the first century, the mystery of lawlessness was already at work. It was what would what would eventually create this was already going on. The, 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 the seeds of apostasy, it was already growing. And not only that, but it's interesting in first John, there is a lot, a lot of people have this idea. Well, there's just think there's a single antichrist, this amazing person who's evil at the end of the world. But. John says there are many antichrists and many antichrists that are risen in the first century. Right. And so it's interesting here that Paul says also, but Jesus will deal with this when he returns. It, it's also, and so it can be an entire succession of individuals within something as well. We need to make sure that we have a love for the truth because it says very closely related to this in 10, 11, and 12, the people that are deceived, the people that get caught up in this and are led astray are people that, two things, they don't love the truth, they take pleasure in unrighteousness. And I think that's the lesson there is, you will be deceived if you don't love the truth. The love of the truth is what keeps you from being led into error. Those are my thoughts. Yeah. I appreciate uh, Mark? Let me add. Let me add to what Mark just said. As as you go down that text, even into verse uh, thirteen and following, he tells them to give thanks to God and to hold fast the traditions that they had been taught, which means the traditions of the apostles, the mm -hmm. apostolic doctrine. That's how you save yourself from any apostasy. Yeah, good thoughts there, guys. Hope that uh, question helps. Thank you for answering that or asking that question, and keep those questions coming. I do want to deal with. Um, this uh, right here, John mentions the Antichrist in the singular, then later in the plural, same idea. And I, and I appreciate that because, Mark, as you were talking, Mark uh, Dunnigan made me think about how easy it is to refute error when people sit there and say, hey, uh, the Antichrist is coming, the Antichrist is coming. And then John says, wait a minute, he's already come. And one, one more thing, uh, there's many. So, uh, yeah, that just refutes error. Uh, and then uh, I want to go back to the meme. I also appreciated this. Uh, many have found their true selves as liars, thieves, murderers murderers, etc. So, and then this one right here, it's amazing how men hurt each other and who do they blame the Lord. So thank you guys for those comments. All right, next question. Um, oh, we got a follow-up here. I want to, I'm sorry, let's go back. Uh, she has a follow-up here. My concern is that this person will come from within the church because this book is written to Christians. I feel one of the preachers in my church is slowly teaching false doctrine. They are trying to introduce Bibles with more than 66 books. Thanks. Uh, guys, you want to comment on that before we move on? Yeah, I, I think that um, that when we talk about that son of perdition, it probably is somebody that was within the church. Um, later on, you read about in Third John, a guy named Diotrephes who had mm -hmm. sought preeminence, and that fits that scenario quite well. Um, as far as somebody introducing the idea of a Bible, more than 66 books, the reason we have those 66 books is long ago, there was a very thorough examination of these things. Um, sometimes today people like to bring in extra books to kind of sound a little more sophisticated and such. You're, you're right to be wary of that. Uh, that actually is a, is a bad sign. If somebody's uh, got other things to study, uh, particularly if they're bringing in other things and saying that that's truth, capital T truth, that Jesus says in John 17, verse 17, the word is truth. Um, yeah, that's something to be concerned about for sure. And, uh, you know, that's worthy of your examination. Um, and uh, it's good for you to catch the danger that there could be in that. And you know, the Bible says to examine all things, uh, the very letters that we're talking about, the Thessalonian letters, examine all things, cling to what's right, 
Turn away and pour what's evil. Yeah, Bob? Yeah, and you know, looking at Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul told the churches, that, uh, the elders of the church at Ephesus, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He goes on to say, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And so, yes, many of these uh, false leaders, as we might say, sons of perdition, and, and yes, there have been many of them, just as there are many Antichrists. And, and John defines Antichrist, anyone who, is, who does not admit that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, son of perdition in the context is defined as one who opposes uh, all, uh, all that is God or is called God and sits uh, in the temple as though he were God. And so, uh, yes, this can come from within the church. And I believe the falling away uh actually did begin was beginning already in paul's day as brethren began to organize above the local level setting one elder up above other elders until eventually you wound up with the uh the supreme elder or the the pope the papacy and so this is this is why many people think the pope is the son of perdition but it really would apply to any and all people in every stage leading up to that uh, anyone who would take part in the escalation of uh, the departure from the truth. And so, and this gets back to the, to the meme. Uh, you've got true religion, then you've got false religion, which is a, a devolution from true religion. And, uh, and those responsible for false religion are sons of perdition. Yeah. Uh, Nick? You know, the Ecclesiastes writer once said, there's nothing new under the sun. And this is certainly applicable here with this um, adding books to the Bible saying there's more to it. Uh, I mentioned Gnosticism a minute ago. That's pretty much what they were doing. (laughs) They were adding books to the the scriptures and claiming them to be authoritative. They were saying they had a special knowledge. That's why they're called the Gnostics. And and only way you can be saved is if you have that special knowledge as well. And so John in first John, he is reiterating the fact that you can know that you're saved, that you can know the Lord without all that mumbo jumbo that they're that they're bringing. And so it, it's important to to recognize that when people are trying to add these lost books of the Bible, because I'm hearing a lot of that, too, uh, here in the central Kentucky, there's a there's this huge draw to the book of Enoch and and also to some of the Gnostic Gospels and writings such as the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas uh, and others like that. And what they're really trying to do is is shower deep doubt upon the word of God. If they can convince people that what they have before them is, has been mutilated, that has been uh, uh, perverted and twisted and books have been left out intentionally, that there has been a great deception about what has, what the Bible is supposed to be, then they have set the stage to seduce you. And, and that way they can tell you what's supposed to have been in there. And, and then therefore they can, set the narrative themselves and they can cause anybody to follow after them. And so this is something that we need to be uh, on top of because it is happening everywhere I turn around. 
And, and so the book of Enoch is probably the biggest. Everybody, everybody's loving this book of Enoch right now. And, and so we really need to, to be aware of this great uh, deception that is taking place. Can we trust the word of God? You better believe we can. It is the best attested ancient document that we have. And people who want to shower doubt on it, they are trying to seduce somebody. And we Amen. talked about the lost books of the Bible last week in our Q&A for those who want to go back in, into our archives and look at last week's Q&A. Are you, are you talking about uh, the Q&A or the Tuesday show, Bob? Well, it may have been Tuesday, but it wouldn't hurt well, to look at both of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, he, what he's talking about is uh, why I believe the Bible is the word of God. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that was it. That was right. yeah. You can find that on our archive for YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook. Also, uh, to let you know that sometimes we have viewers who contact us for a private study. So if, if you need some help with these things and help dealing with these issues within your church, uh, contact us, email us, or Facebook us. And uh, we will we'll get on video chat with you privately and, and study with you and help you out, give you some some things to think about and, and to consider. So just let us know if we can help you with those things. All right. I uh, appreciate the, the question again. Next question. Is Jesus giving a parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? You know what? I think Terry probably is going to be want to be here for this one. And Terry's out right now. Or is this a description of actual afterlife for the good and evil? If you think it is a parable and not real, what does the parable teach and why call it a parable? All right. Let's see if there's any agreement on this uh, question. Uh, Mark Dunnigan, we'll start with you. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's not called the parable. And it starts with some very definitive sort of statements. There was a rich man. And also it talks about Lazarus. We have a specific individual here named. Why, why would anyone want it to be a parable? And the only reason I can think of that is the groups that do not want to acknowledge an afterlife any suffering in the afterlife, the existence of man after death, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they want it to be a parable. Very inconvenient text of scripture for them. It's interesting, Brian, that um, it, as I read their interpretation of Luke, uh, Luke 16 and their interpretation of it as a parable, uh, they feel the rich man is the Pharisees. And the clergy, the rich man is the clergy and Lazarus is the regular, common, regular, ordinary, poor people, godly people. And that the rich man is presently tormented by the preaching of the watchtower. And that the Lazarus entered into Abraham's bosom in 1919, you know, and is comforted by that. So, which means that it has zero application to anyone born between before 1919, which is kind of interesting point of view, kind of. Uh, you know, like every no one else benefits from that. Uh, but here's the thing, Brian. It's interesting there that in that interpretation that they have, where they want it to be a parable and everything symbolic, uh, the suffering symbolic, you name it. Moses and the prophets are not symbolic. Uh, my 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 question to them: is, If this is symbolic, then what do Moses and the prophets represent? Because they. If it's symbolic, then Moses and the prophets can't represent Moses and the prophets. Not only that, what does it mean? And it's interesting to me that at some point, at some point, um, the idea it's all symbolic completely breaks down in my mind. Those are my thoughts, Brian. All right, uh, Bob, what you got? 
Hi, I believe this is, certainly is something that did happen, as, as Mark pointed out. Jesus said there was a certain rich man, and he died, and he was buried. And there was a, a, a poor man who laid his gate full of swords. He died. And the angels carried him, the poor man, to Abraham's bosom. Well, I believe this is a, a historical account. I believe we have to admit that there are figurative aspects to it. Uh, the rich man's body was buried, we're told that. And so that was not his body that was in Hades. It was not his literal tongue that, was, that needed to be cooled. Uh, it was not his eyes that he opened and saw Lazarus. Uh, it was not Lazarus. Lazarus did not have a finger to dip in cool water. And I doubt if there was any cool water there to dip it in. And so all of these things are figurative for the uh, respective condition states of these two individuals. And these physical senses, I believe, are figurative for perception. Uh, each one perceived these things. And uh, there, and I think the only pain really in, in Hades and hell will be uh, psychological and emotional agony. Uh, we won't have physical, tangible, physical bodies as far as I know. No physical pain as we know it. But I believe people uh, don't really appreciate how, how awful agony can be and psychological uh, suffering. And so to me, here were these, here were these two people uh the rich man he had it all and he thought that was proof that he was all right with god here was lazarus admittedly a person in physical need who has had been humbled by his circumstances but in death their circumstances were uh were reversed and uh the rich man was punished and lazarus was uh comforted and to me, that's the idea there, the the punishment and as opposed to the comfort. And I believe these are figuratively represented by the actions of these two individuals after death. Uh, not that their body still existed and felt and did these things, but this was what they were going through uh, mentally, emotionally, psychologically. So some kind of figure that I don't know the name of. But it's never called a parable. Brian Haynes. You know, one one thing I always draw out of this uh, that I think is really relevant, and sometimes this is what I like to focus in on, uh, is number one, it, you know, the death, dead don't speak to us. But if they could speak to us, they would say, don't end up on the wrong side of judgment. That's, that's huge. You know, uh, it, they wouldn't say, hey, I wish I had made more money. I wish I had had better things. They will say there's only one thing that matters eternal destination. Um, I always love the closing remarks too. The second thing I like to draw out of this and, and make a big point about is that at the very end, uh, the conversation is send a dead guy back. Uh, by the way, this is uh, where uh, the Christmas carol comes from. The idea of, uh, 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 you know, of, uh, I just forgot his name, uh, Scrooge, uh, you know, at, at being visited by old Marley. If a dead person comes back, the statement is, they would not be as convinced as they will be by the word of God. That's actually a profound statement that somebody would not be as convinced of truth by meeting a dead person 
as they will be by the word of God. Um, and that's a thought that I think everybody should dwell on, a, a, a heavy meaning to the concept of what is the power of the scriptures. The power of the scriptures are that they alone convict people of truth, not experiences, not, can I throw out miracles because somebody coming back from the dead would be a miracle, not any of those things. The scriptures are the weight of the veracity of truth. And that's a profound idea that comes out of this. Mark, do you have and spinning off of what Brian just said, uh, the contextually, this story, whether literal or a parable, and let's just say for the fact that even if someone wants to argue that it is a parable, that Jesus never in any parable ever made up something that wasn't based in reality. Uh, so the the idea of the Jehovah's Witnesses trying to dismiss the characterization of the situation between death and the resurrection is not made up by Jesus. It would still be based in the reality of the situation. So that doesn't change. They're wrong in how they try to use parables or try to uh, characterize parables as making symbols that doesn't that do not exist or are not based in reality. But the whole context here is that Jesus is answering the error of the Pharisees. It goes back up to verse 14. They were lovers of money. And you see him attack that right away by showing a rich man who just by virtue of his riches was not faithful and ended up wrong. And then as, as, uh, as Brian was more pointing out there toward the end, the idea of the rejection of Moses and the prophets was also characteristic of the Pharisees in the sense that they, Jesus and John 5, said that they had rejected Moses in the prophecies concerning him. So they did not put their trust in the scriptures rather than in, in themselves and in their own interpretations. So the rich man and Lazarus is an attack upon the Pharisees and their errors in both covetousness and in their lack of uh, lack of respect and uh, understanding of the scriptures. You know, Brian, I'm glad this question came up because, man, there's a lot here. You know, it's interesting. Jesus passes over any comments at the funeral. You know, that's pretty much was was irrelevant. Uh, I'm also impressed that um, there's no mercy. No mercy is given the rich man, not even a little bit of mercy. Uh, I am impressed that there are no second chances here. Uh, I'm also impressed that the rich man is not changed by his torment. That is, he argues. He argues with Abraham. The idea that death magically changes people and, okay, I get it now and I'll come to terms with that. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't change him. Not only that, Brian, but, you know, we, every year we have the, the elites, the rich and famous, the people that we knew as kids that were like music stars and actors. We have them dying every year. Gordon Lightfoot just, just passed away. Guess what? And not only that, but you go into a lot of gift shops, et cetera, and she, you see the pictures of Humphrey Bogart, Marilyn Monroe, James Dean, and Elvis, all, you know, some sort of, a, you know, boulevard of broken dreams. And now there they are hanging out in eternity. Um, everyone who has ever died would tell you the same thing. Don't come here. Everyone who's ever died outside of Christ would tell you the same thing, whether there's, uh, and it would be, don't come here, don't follow me. Um, you need to make sure you're saved. And so if any of the audience out there, you've got, like myself, moms and dads who were not members of the church and they died, they don't want us following them. Um, they want us being saved. 
Um, anyone who's ever died now knows what it's all about. They get it. They get it now. Even the elite, they get it now. Uh, Elvis, Elvis would say, don't be listening. You guys, don't be watching my movies. Read the Bible. Read the Bible and get right with God. Those are my thoughts, Brian. All right. Appreciate it. And thank you for the question. Don't forget, you can email us right now. Questions at answeringreligiousair.com, private messages, facebook.com slash answering religious air or if you'd like we have a few more minutes you can come on the show just to follow the instructions there on the facebook description as well as youtube description click on that link and uh, you'll be uh, given some instructions on how to come on the show all right next question i've seen this facebook post being passed along by friends it is an old story i've heard before uh, though i do understand the people in church need a good attitude and be welcoming I feel the preacher in the story was being deceptive and then wanted to preach against the people for their sins. Isn't this the type of actions Jesus speaks against in Matthew 7, 1 through 5? This is a long read. My apologies. I do not know if ARE wants this. I thought I would share anyway. Okay, the question or the story uh, that this gentleman is referring to goes like this. Give me a second to read it here. Uh, a pastor transformed himself into a homeless person and went to the church that he was to be introduced as the head pastor at that morning. He walked around his soon-to-be church for 30 minutes while it was filling with people for service. Only three people said hello to him. Most looked the other way. He asked people for change to buy food because he was hungry. Not one gave him anything. Uh, he went into the sanctuary to sit down in the front of the church and was told by the ushers that he would need to get up and go sit in the back of the church. He said hello to people as they walked in, but was greeted with cold stares and dirty looks from people looking down on him and judging him. He sat in the back of the church and listened to the church announcements for the week. He listened as the new visitors were welcomed into the church that morning, but no one acknowledged that he was new. He watched people around him continue to look his way with stares that said, you are not welcome here. Then the elders of the church went to the podium to make the announcement. They said they were excited to introduce the new pastor of the church to the congregation we would like to introduce you to our new pastor. The congregation stood up and looked around, clapping with joy and anticipation. The homeless man sitting in the back stood up and started walking down the aisle. That's when all the clapping stopped and the church was silent. With all eyes on him, he walked up the altar and reached for the microphone. He stood there for a moment and then recited so eloquently a verse from the Bible. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for the least of my brothers and sisters, you did for me. After he recited this, he introduced himself as the new pastor and told the congregation what he had experienced that morning. Many began to cry and bow their heads in shame. Today I see a gathering of people here, but I do not see a church of Jesus. The world has enough people that look the other way. What the world needs is disciples of Jesus that can follow this teachings and his teachings and live as he did. When will you decide to become disciples? He then dismissed service until the following Sunday as his sermon had been given. All right, so there's the story. It was long, but 
let's answer this question uh, for this gentleman here. I feel the preacher in the story was being deceptive and then went wanted to preach against the people for their sins. Isn't this the type of action actions Jesus speaks against in Matthew 7, 1 through 5? We'll just take that. Well, you know, Brian, uh, it's it's interesting. I've run into stories like this before, and they almost seem like manufactured stories, like cherry pick stories. Like, let's try the picture of the church in the worst possible light. Uh, certainly, James chapter two warns us about uh, showing favoritism uh, when it comes to the people that show up, and James deals with that. But you know what, when I read this, usually when I read stories like this, there's certain things that don't make sense about the story or don't seem to ring true. Were the elders in on of it? In on it because the elders were going to announce the guy, but the guy showed up looking like a homeless person. Were the elders just assuming that the new preacher had shown up? Also, the word pastor is a, a red flag, is that this is a story, looks like created in the denominational world, not by members of the Lord's church. But it just seems like it's intended to make God's people look bad. I've been in a number of churches, and I haven't ever seen somebody in, in a situation treated like that. In fact, I've often seen the opposite. I've seen members say, hey, I'll take you to get some food. I'm not going to give you money because you'll often spend that on drugs. But I will get you in my car. I'll take you to the local grocery store, and I'll help you go grocery shopping. And guess what? They've been given the nasty look. I've seen so many Christians offer food and help and et cetera to people that come in claiming to need help. And if cash is not given, man, uh, and I've had people be, get, be very argumentative, confrontational in our face and uh, well, you know, and, and call us horrible names because we did not give them cash. So. You know what? That story doesn't tell the whole picture or the whole truth. I guess the older I get, I'm very concerned about stories that make the bride of Christ look bad. It's the bride of Christ. We need to be careful how we speak about the bride of Christ. I know Christians can be, I know Christians always need help and some improvement, but man, I'm not a fan of, let's see how bad we can make the bride of Christ look. Those are just my personal comments brian as far as is it deceptive it's not something i would do i don't like i don't like the strategy he went to etc but at the same time i don't think the story's true either those are my thoughts anyone else all right uh, thank you mark for being the only one to answer that question all right uh, our next question that we have uh is a live one uh waiting for the producer to bring it up. Here it is. When an argument with another Christian becomes heated, when do we know we have crossed into reveling as the Bible describes it? Is it worth it then to point this out to your brother or, or reviling? Excuse me. Uh, I saw Nick smirk. And I was like, okay, I did not pronounce that correctly. Apparently as <laughs> I, I was already thinking, did I pronounce that correctly as I was reading it? Is it worth it then to point this out to our brother or sister? All right, uh, what you what you got, Nick? Let's start with you. Well, I um, when I studied with these guys at the uh, drug rehabilitation facility here in Butler County, uh, they they get into heated arguments sometimes, and they can it can get kind of bitter, and and so throughout the uh, 
religious world, the idea of debate gets kind of silenced. And, and I tell them, no, debate is good. Uh, discussing the Bible is good. And getting angry about things uh, is certainly is when things cross the line. Because you begin to shut off and you begin to get to the point where you want to defend yourself. And once you get to that point, you're not going to be listening to reason, nor will the other person listen to reason either. And so I, I encourage people to debate. I encourage people to sit down and, and challenge the, the, you know, their positions on the scriptures because we need to be asking the questions. Well, what does the context say? What is this passage about? And a lot of people will be out there teaching, well, you got your interpretation. I've got my interpretation. And, and we're okay with that. And, and that's, that's certainly not the case because two uh, opposing interpretations are, are certainly not being fair to the text. And so uh, we have to be able to sit down and be able to discuss. And, and when we do get angry, we have to be able to and be willing to say, hey, look, uh, I'm not acting like I'm supposed to be acting. Let's, let's take a break. Let's cool off so that we can come back to this later. Now, this idea of reviling, uh, being being angry, uh, if you've got to be able to uh, get them to, to see that, hey, this what's happening is 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 uh, you know offending you, saying, hey, we're, we're not discussing anymore. We're we're in the point of of arguing and fighting, and and I, you know, this idea of reviling, this attack. Uh, there's there's no productive uh, discussion here. Uh, you just you mentioned in the comments a, a prayer and and patience. I think that's key uh, to to any any conversation. Uh, being willing to uh, to listen uh, and and that's that's important. And so those are some of the thoughts that I've had. You know, with a similar situation of getting angry and bitter towards one another, take time off and say, "Hey, let's let's come at this with cooler heads." You're getting angry. I'm getting angry. Neither one of us are going to be productive with that. But I want us to continue this discussion. All right. Who else? You know, there's an interesting and important passage in Second Timothy chapter 2, where Paul is admonishing Timothy as the evangelist, but something I think all of us can take to heart. In verse 23, he says, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. What's interesting about that passage is that it it envisions two scenarios. One, where it's a conversation or a debate or, uh, you know, an argument that that is that is foolish. It's ignorant. You know, somebody has an ignorant position. Somebody is just, you know, foolhardily debating it. Uh, the command is avoid it. You know, get out of it. Don't don't be drawn drawn into it. Secondly, though, it also envisions a time in verse 24 and 25 where somebody is saying things that are wrong, uh, that are that are in error. And he envisions there the gentle correction, the gentle correction, so that those who are in opposition are uh, going to handle this. Let's let's just say this. Um, you know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter five that you're going to be reviled if uh, you are a servant of Christ and you're speaking the things of God. And so the Bible says repeatedly that the answer then is not to uh, to revile back, to be like Jesus. In First uh, uh, Peter 3 and verse 15, he says, to sanctify the Lord in your hearts, be ready with an answer. Um, but then he goes on to say, having a good conscience that when they, uh, translations say, revile you as evildoers, uh, they'll see your good conduct in Christ and be ashamed. 
Um, anytime something like this comes up with me, I end a conversation because it's too easy for me to get my emotions worked up and to, uh, to respond in a, in a manner that's, that's not the will of Christ. And that's kind of what Paul is telling Timothy, just get out of that conversation, just back off. Even if it is important, that's an important idea. Even if it is something where somebody is speaking something that's not the truth, if it has become a conversation of antagonism and as you described, reviling, the servant of God gets out of it. Uh, they say, let's not talk about this right now. Uh, let's let's put this off and talk about it later. I, I've had Bible classes where people got into something where they were wrong. And I said, let's talk about this later. Um, always works. Uh, I haven't had a time yet where somebody wouldn't back out once I said, not now. I, I'm not going to engage you. Um, we'll, we'll do this another time. Um, and oftentimes it, it's, a, it's a successful thing. But there's a, there's a lot of scriptures that tell us how to respond. And it always is not to revile back, to be patient, to disengage if necessary. Uh, you know, uh, all of those things are things that we have to step back and let go because we're not, you know, we're not going to be successful in convicting somebody when they've become, you know, uh, uh, abusive or, or all these different things. We have to, we have to deescalate that conversation, not win the debate. Good thoughts. Anyone else? You know, Proverbs says, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. James says, uh, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Sometimes we might be guilty of escalating a situation as opposed to trying to defuse it. And uh, I think probably just softly, I think we need to respond to the to the question, accusation, whatever it is. And after we've dealt with that, then say, now let's talk about your attitude and, and your approach to me at this time. But do so in a in a soft spoken way. And uh, and they should be should be willing to to respond. And I appreciate also the comments that uh, uh, Brian made uh, from Paul's epistle to Timothy there. But we, we need to make sure that, that we did not contribute to this by uh, escalating an argument or, or a discussion or whatever. But yeah, it is wrong to revile and reviling does need to be dealt with. You know, Brian, I think once you get to yelling, <laughs> you've probably crossed the line if you're yelling. Also, if you're uh, calling the other person various names, you're probably not in a good territory. You're not dealing with the text. I think a good rule of thumb is that when you're dealing, uh, the word heated, a lot of conversations are going to be heated. And so I don't think the problem is with the word heated uh, because you're dealing with truth. You're dealing with people's souls and eternity. And you're at times the, the Bible is going to be challenging your cherished preconceptions. It's going to be heated. It's, it's going to be uncomfortable. But I think if you can have people read the text, I want you to read that text. I, you got this question? Okay, read that text. See what God says. That I want your, I want your, I want your debate between you and the writer of the text, not me. I'm just the facilitator. I want you it being between you and God. You guys got to work that out, or you have to work that out with God. I, I would agree with a comment that reviling is not anger, but I don't think you can separate it from anger. I think that's where it comes from. That that would just be right. my only additional thought there. Brian, great and to I be would, on the show today. And I would add to that, we're thinking more of ourselves if we're arguing instead of the other person. 
we need to think of their interests first and that will calm us down. That's the main thing. Yeah. Nick, did you have something you wanted to say fine? Well, uh, you know, the idea that uh, it, the conversation becomes unproductive, there's a point where we can put into practice what Jesus taught. He said, do not cast pearls before swine. Mm -hmm. Do not give what is holy to the dogs. And another point, I believe it's in chapter 10 of Matthew says, you know, you just got to wipe the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. Uh, you know, sometimes these conversations are not going to be productive and you're just wasting your time. And it's time to move on to, to find somebody who would be willing to listen to the truth and the gospel and, and, and so we need to use our time wisely. I, I spent a lot of time years ago debating and battling on Facebook comments. <laughs> and and I don't know if there was ever any productive use of that time. Amen. But, but when I get engaged with somebody one on one, we can sit down and have a conversation and we can open up the Bible. And if things get too heated before it becomes reviling, before it becomes a problem, we can take a pause and, and we can come back at it because we know that we have each other's best interests at heart. Or I can read the person and say, hey, this person doesn't care at all about the truth. He just wants to prove his own way. I'm like, hey, I don't have time for this. I've got other people I can be talking to. And so there's got to be there's got to be some discernment and some wisdom. Uh, the, the Lord says to be gentle as does, but wise as serpents. And, and so sometimes we got to put that wisdom into action. So maybe there's got to come a point. There's that line that gets crossed where you say, I'm now casting pearls before swine or I'm, I'm giving to the dogs what is holy. Uh, when is it the proper time to wipe that dust off your feet and move on? And so that's where I would uh, leave it with you, uh, Sam, and, and uh, with that discernment. Use that prayer. Use that time of meditation. And think think soberly about your time and what you can be doing with it. Yeah. Amen. Nick, to that. Those, are, those are great thoughts, Nick. You know, I'm not sure if Sam was talking about a face to face one on one. But here's the thing that is happening is that people will say things, as Nick, you noted, people will say things on social media they would never say to someone face to face. And I think there's a dangerous trend in our culture of the. The amenity at times that social media gives you or the distance it gives you, um, you forget who you are. And to, so I think that's why it's really, really important to have, um, if you can, a face-to-face -face discussion with people about something uh, because you speak differently. You speak differently. But Nick, I appreciate what you did on Facebook because you might feel like, I don't know if I was able to change that anybody's mind, but other people are listening. And I know there are Christians there that will see something posted on Facebook and they'll go like, why isn't anyone responding to that? And the very fact that re you responded, there were people out there that said, yes, Nick, yes, someone responded to that. So that was not wasted effort. That would just be my final comment. Yeah. Appreciate that. I'll tell you, you know, we started answering religious there in 2012 uh, Bob, you remember that? It was me, you, and Terry that started it. And man, we have had hundreds, if not thousands, of online Facebook dis discussions, you know, going back and forth. And I would say, as a whole, Answer Religious Air really mellowed out on that because we, then we got into video and we had a lot less issues because people were seeing us. They weren't just reading our words. They didn't have, there was no, you know, what was the, the tone, what was the facial expressions of these people who are writing all of this stuff that is contrary to what I believe, but now they can actually see us. And we've had a lot of good success through video because people we're having, even though it's, we're not seeing them, they see us, they see that we're not uh, jerks out there, you know, these religious jerks. So anyway, 
uh, I do appreciate the, those comments. And uh, I think uh, you do have a lot more uh, success doing one-on-one. Appreciate that comment there. We are a little over time here. Guys, any last minute comments before we close up today? All right. Thank you for being on and appreciate you taking time from your local work to uh, answer these questions for the folks who are asking these questions. Uh, if you did not get your question in uh, today, uh, Lord willing, we'll be back next Wednesday, 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live Bible Q&A. We go live every Wednesday. And so we uh, we can do our best to get to your question. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, also on podcast, uh, all these shows are uploaded audio only. So we'd encourage you if you're not able to catch us live or you don't want to watch us on video, you can listen while driving down the road or whatever the case may be. Just search for The Daily Answer or for uh, Answering Religious Error on all major podcast platforms. Uh, a couple of shows, a couple of announcements here. On Tuesdays at 12 p.m. Eastern Time is a series we're doing called Why I Believe. And so uh, we'd encourage you to check out the archived videos. We've done things like, why do I believe in the existence of God? Why do I believe that the Bible is the word of God? Why do I, uh, we're going to be dealing with why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus and so on. Uh, and so if you need help uh, with those doctrinal issues, we'd encourage you to check out every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern time, our newest series called Why I Believe. You can catch us live on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter and podcast platforms. Then on Monday through Friday, 5 a.m. Eastern time is the daily answer with Mark Dunnigan, who is the host, and he will give you some great insight to the Bible and challenge you as you grow with Christ. He'll prick your heart. He'll make you laugh. He'll make you cry, all those things. And uh, so we encourage you to check out the daily answer Monday through Friday at 5 a.m. Eastern time. Don't forget the women over there on Older Women Likewise. Every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern time is Older Women Likewise. They go live. Uh, Mark Dunnigan's wife, Cindy, is currently hosting that show. You can find them on Facebook and YouTube, as well as on all major podcast platforms. That's all the time we have for today. Appreciate you tuning in and supporting the Answer Religious Air show. Until next time, God bless.